0: Hi, my name is Rich LB, and welcome to this week's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. This week, we're going to be talking a little about space stations and some various topics covering around it. Firstly, though, I'd like to take a moment to introduce the co-hosts I have on show with me today, starting with Kage. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Why, yes, I would. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary. And I will now pass over to another co-host of our fine programs, Miko.
2: Hey, I'm Miko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. And I'm going to pass over to our special guest, Felix.
3: Hey, it's me, Felix. I'm here for the second
0: time now. I'm the host of the YouTube channel. What about it? Uh, Thank you for coming back again, Felix, to host with us on our show. It's going to be a real pleasure having you here today. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: So Felix, yes, thank you uh, for joining us once again, and as we said earlier, today's topic is about space stations, and not only uh, space stations, but also the travel to and from, and where we go from here. So before we get started, do you have any uh, thoughts you want to give on where we currently stand with space station technology?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I could probably elaborate like 20 minutes about that. We're doing baby steps, and we have been doing baby steps with space stations. In my opinion, uh, we've had a few so far, very small ones, and then one large one, the ISS that we all know. But even that is not really large, and I'm 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 really hoping that uh, uh, with future vehicles, one of them, if it works out, being Starship, uh, we might be able to actually make make them a little bit bigger Uh, because right now it's like what six to seven crew members on the on the iss thanks to 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 crew dragon we have seven
1: now um which is rather rather small in my opinion but you actually mentioned something interesting there that it's not that large it actually is quite big it's uh about the size of a i think at least an american football field maybe if not a european football field um but as you mentioned, it, it does have seven people on board, but it's currently getting pushed to its limits. Um, why, why is it at uh, near its capacity, even though it's that big?
3: Oh, that's because of the escape vehicles. Um, you always need to ensure that the crew in an emergency uh, can get out of the station. And so um, it's limited in that way that you that you now that the Crew Dragon can right now have four passengers on board and a Soyuz module can have three, it makes seven. That's the reason why they can't have more crew.
2: And in theory, they could have a short term occupants of oh, about 14 people if there was a yep. Soyuz and Crew Dragon changeover at the same time. Yeah,
3: and in the shuttle times, they uh, they had more crew on board at uh, a few times because the shuttle was able to what have another seven, I think. And uh, so the, the it, they the, the ISS at some point was so filled that they didn't even have uh, sleeping booths for everybody. They just had sleeping bags and were everywhere on the station, basically. So yeah, it, it could harbor more people, but yeah, it's the, the, the safety aspect that keeps them from going over seven right now.
0: So let's rewind a bit there. And uh, well, I want to just, I know a lot of people have covered it recently. I'm just literally wanting to touch on it very lightly here. And that is crew one. Um, firstly, you know, we all saw the launch. It was great. Uh, we all saw the heartwarming part where the, the crew came on board the ISS and there was hugs all around, uh, including the cosmonauts as well. And, uh, you know, seeing Shannon Walker up there again is actually quite fun. Um, You know, she looked very excited to be back as well. So let's touch a little bit on on Crew-1 and then we'll move on to the ISS. Miko, you have anything to add on Crew-1?
2: Even now on the ISS, they don't have sleeping quarters for all crew members, since Mike Hopkins is sleeping in the Crew Dragon capsule. But wouldn't you think maybe that might
1: be a little bit more comfortable for him than all the other crew members that are on board the space station, because, I mean, he's got an entire capsule all to himself. It's uh, it's newer, it's roomy. Um, I mean, yeah. is that is that really a problem? <laughs> it's probably also less noisy, which
3: is the biggest thing on the ISS. I've seen that on plenty interviews. interviews. Um, Private space is a problem on the ISS and also the noise, the constant noise of the of the ventilation system and all the systems around you it, there's a constant noise in the background and I imagine on the on the uh, Dragon capsule, it's it's quiet Which would be
1: just fine <laughs> And he has his own personal bathroom there, too. Yeah Yep, I'd take the <laughs> dragon <laughs> I think I would too. Plus, I mean, it's I uh he's already uh, in his escape pod in case anything goes wrong, then all he has to do is just like quickly shut the hatch on dock and uh, see you guys. <laughs> <Wave> <laughs> Hope you get back home safely. Wave through the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wave, yeah. wave bye-bye through the window.
2: <laughs> but one negative side about sleeping in the dragon that Mike Hopkins said is that he wants to be really careful not to damage the vehicle so they can actually land back on the Earth. That's true.
1: I would be impressed if you were able to damage that vehicle somehow. Just the sheer volume of engineering and fault tolerance that SpaceX has put into that thing. Give him a sledgehammer he probably wouldn't be able to make much of a dent.
3: Well, on the hull maybe, but what What about the internals?
2: This still... Yeah, push the wrong button. <laughs>
3: Uh, don't don't introduce light to the crew dragon capsule. I think that's a bad idea.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, all it took was a improper improperly drilled hole to cause problems with uh, one of the uh, Soyuz capsules, if I remember correctly. And I would wager that just given the more the newer engineering and the unthinkable amount of hurdles that SpaceX must have had to have. Uh, gotten over to human-certify the Dragon Capsule, I would wager it's, it's pretty resilient.
0: So, circling back to the ISS now, we know that it's officially been approved to extend its mission through December 2024, and we also know that it may have approval even to operate until the end of 2028, although that extension hasn't been officially sounded off yet at the time of this recording. So, With the, you know, Crew 1 becoming a reality now, and uh, the Crew Resupply mission being in effect now as well, we're able to cycle crew on and off there, we're going to see a lot more science being done on the ISS now, so it's basically gotten this new lease of life almost towards the end of its life, so... I'm really excited to see how many, you know, experiments we get up there and what, what kind of scientific progress we're going to make now going forward uh, up until 2024. Anybody with any thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's, you're, you're right that there is a lot of potential for science, but Felix, you said something important a few minutes ago that we're still in baby steps when it comes to space stations. I mean, the International Space Station has been in operation for 20 years now. Uh, There have been other uh, space stations that came before that, but it's still largely in its infancy. And it's even potential, uh, it's, it's even possible to say that while we have done a lot of scientific advancements, maybe have we stagnated in that because we're still stuck in low Earth orbit.
3: Yeah, that's what it feels like to me too and uh, about the extension beyond 2024. I've recently read an article, RSC Energia, the corporation that produces the space, uh, the the space station modules for Roscosmos. Their CEO, I think, um, the chief in operation has uh, had an interview with uh, press on November 24th, I think, where he stated that uh, the Russian side of the ISS is in really bad shape right now. And uh, that he says that, Come 2024, and maybe even before that, they are facing serious technical problems, and that that could be cascading effect. The same thing that they saw on the Mir station uh, in its in its last operational year. It was a nightmare. They had technical problems all around, and uh, that he said that it would be questionable to um, to maintain the Russian part of the ISS beyond 2024. So, and the interesting part about that is not even that. Uh, Russia says maybe we can't continue this anymore. It's that um, right after that they said that they are planning their own station. I don't know if if Russia has enough funding for for their own station, but what that signals is that they are going apart again uh china is doing their own thing russia then might be doing their own thing and then it would be just the us and europe working together again and i think the main reason why we have the iss up there is because everybody worked together i hope that's not going to fall apart so uh just uh, that just to uh if the iss is going to continue it's it's really hard to to maintain the or to repair and upgrade the station's modules because uh, if you have a module in the middle that you want to maybe replace because um, it's too old, you would have to decouple part of the station, remove the module and put another module in. For that, you would need a space shuttle. That's the biggest problem there. And I don't see SpaceX to be ready with a Starship by 2024
0: so that it could replace a, a, a space station module. Well, let's, let's not discount Elon time, yeah. you know, there is Elon time as well, however, effectively what I'm seeing here is we need that cargo capability of the Starship in order to be able to fire up a station for the US and Europe as you say but one thing i do hope that comes out of this is even if china and and russia make their own station i'd hate if the international cooperation that we see falls by the wayside as well because i think very much so that the the cosmonauts and the astronauts that go up there i think they still very much have you know a sense of camaraderie a sense of family you know even though they're from different countries and i i think that should still be a thing going forward regardless of who builds stations
3: yeah, I think on the ISS there is, there are very, very little politics. Agreed, Yep.
2: I'm going to circle back a bit about the Russian segment modules because I think it was last week when the Russian cosmonauts did a spacewalk to prepare for an undock of one module and they will replace it with another one. Have you heard about that?
3: Yeah, I have, but that's on the outside. Is it even possible to replace a segment, a module on, in the inner structure? Is that Probab- even possible?
2: <laughs> Probably very difficult. Mm.
3: Yeah, so at, at some, what I wanted to say is that at some point we will have to have a new station. It's not possible to maintain the ISS further because um, it's, it wasn't built like that. There are um, um, concepts of space stations where you can replace every mod- module, but on, on the ISS I don't think that's
1: possible. But is it worthwhile, um, long-term speaking, to replace the International Space Station as it currently stands, or should we take that to another level? For example, should it still be in a low-Earth orbit, or should we start looking beyond those horizons?
3: We should, but that all depends on a lot of different countries and companies, and they will all have to work together, even if we possess uh, the abilities of a starship you have to have people making the modules you have to have people who want to maintain them and so on and so forth so yeah in my opinion we should have something like the von Braun station by now but uh, yeah it it all depends on on if it's feasible if it's needed if there are partners who are actually willing to invest lots of money
2: Well, speaking about about the partners have you heard about the axiom space becoming a part of ISS and in a few years after ISS has been decommissioned, they would separate as their own space station.
1: Mm,
3: Heard about it. I think that's a good idea. Um, It would give the
1: foundation to build something new. So if we do build something new and we take it beyond low earth orbit, there is one, at least one big hurdle that would need to be overcome. And that's that. As, as mentioned earlier, right now, the International Space Station is near its uh, capacity and strain for being able to hold more personnel. Um, but if anything goes wrong, the entire crew can be back on Earth in a matter of hours. And that kind of provides a psychological safety net in, in some degree. And if we have a space station let's say even as close as the moon, or especially one that's as far away as Mars or Venus or even further still, that won't be the case where a crew that's in orbit in one of those space stations would be able to return to the earth in a matter of hours, but instead days or even months uh, or longer. So how much will this change the psychological effect that astronauts would feel and how can future crews overcome that, especially when we're talking about trying to maintain a, a nonpartisan, politics-free mentality and keeping things, you know, keeping psychological sanity uh, absolutely paramount. Oh, if I may
3: jump in here, um, I think it's, um, how to phrase this, humans do a lot of dangerous things in the name of science, and uh, we have the ability to Uh, in in ourselves. We have the ability to ignore danger if we want to do something. Otherwise we wouldn't have Formula One drivers or scientists who climb into an active volcano to take a sample and so on and so forth. There are thousands of occupations that are extremely hazardous and still people do it. So I don't think that's kind of be a big problem. I know it's 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 going around always that that uh, that people would go insane if they would have to travel for six months to Mars and so on, and and then they would be very very much in danger, especially on Mars. If something happens and you can't get to safety, that's it. You're on your own. Um, but I think that's not going to keep us. Uh, What's keeping us right now is not the fact that it would be really, really dangerous. It's the fact that nobody wants to invest money into it. It's 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 just about economics. If it's feasible, we'll do it. That's at least my opinion. The people you will find people who will be able, who will want to, and who will be able to do it.
1: But it's not only the uh, financial investment, I think, but also the purpose. That there's not really a clear purpose as to what are we financially investing into? Previously, just a couple years ago even, there, were, there was a long-standing idea of making a lunar gateway, having a, a space station in lunar orbit as kind of a docking station onto the next venture, and now that's effectively out of the window. So what would the next evolution in space station technology be? What would be the next purpose that uh, would be a viable financial investment it still begs the question of what is the ultimate purpose of, of building a space station? So if you look at the International Space Station, the purpose there was, was twofold. One, to have a perpetual uh, place in space where science and experiments and uh, more research and learning could be had and done. Uh, but secondly, also as a, as, as a kind of a Switzerland of space, where everything was neutral everything everyone worked together there were no politics that got in the way for the most part but then what would be the purpose of the next evolution of, of space stations let's say we move on to a space station uh, circling mars or, or the moon or somewhere else what would be our next purpose for this journey if you compare it to the wild west uh, scenario that we had in
3: the United States when when they, when they colonized further and further, um, you can see that big industry always moved in after um, the, the, the settlers came. And then they had a foundation with which they could build their businesses. And that's the problem we're facing when we go to Mars or when we build a huge space station, because there is nothing out there yet. You cannot build A a, a business on nothing. You have to have something that you can earn your money with to be um, to to give an incentive for the companies to actually invest because I don't think that uh, this if we're talking about colonization and and resource mining and all that kind of stuff I don't think that that governments are going to do that that would need the private sector. So yeah um, there are a few things that NASA is right now doing to try to build a low earth orbit economy as they call it. But that is hard to do, even in low Earth orbit. You need to you need to have some sort of reason to build that shiny large space station or the or you need somebody like Elon Musk who says, I don't care. I don't want to earn money with this. I earn the money somewhere else and I invest into the Mars colony. That's basically in my opinion the only way how you can do something like that because then once the colony is there it'll need supplies resources there will be people working as haircutters or whatever and they the cleaning lady will will come in and earn earn money um but what that's that only happens once it's there
1: so i feel like the international um i feel like the The international cooperation aspect of why the space station the international space station came about especially not so long after the end of the cold war and the fall of the berlin wall and uh, collapse of the soviet union and this real necessary uh this this need to unify two superpowers on earth that that's kind of fallen by the wayside so is it is it possible that we could have that kind of international cooperation again without that need to create a space Switzerland to create the next international space station beyond low earth orbit is there a purpose that we could collectively as as multiple nations Uh, get behind in order to finance that and drive that purpose for the next bastion of uh, technology and space exploration and scientific uh, advancement.
3: Yeah, like I said, I don't think so. I think it in, in the beginning it needs somebody who says, I'm just going to invest into it. It's this angel angel investor mentality is needed for that. Somebody who just steps up and says, I think that's a great idea. I'm gonna pour a lot of money into it to see what comes out in the end. Because otherwise, what why do you I mean why would you want to go out there? We have everything here. We have more here than, than than we could get anywhere else. On the moon, you can do science, but anything, you don't want to take a walk on the moon. You, it's much my, nicer to do it in the woods here on a nice sum, summer day, and it's much easier to do. And it's the same for Mars or for a space station that's further away and that is large because you don't you don't need a large space station to do science. You need a small one and so on and so forth. So if you want to go big, you need that initial investment, at least in my opinion. Otherwise, yeah, it's really hard.
1: One of the challenges with that kind of an initial investment is that if you look at how NASA has classically done things, they are very much in a, to use a software design uh, uh, terminology here, they're very much of a waterfall style where they ...analyze and discover all variables, control those variables... Uh, ...they have full control over their uh, proximate resources... ...they discover what approximate resources they don't have... ...acquire those, and take years and years to properly research and develop things... ...until they have absolute perfection to put into space. That's clearly not what SpaceX does. So, it would take an incredible amount of not only money for an angel investor to build the next generation of a space station but also a lot of trial and error to do so as well how can a organization like spacex or somebody else do that without just ending up bankrupting themselves over potential failure after failure after failure until they get it right
3: how to phrase this correctly okay so you gave NASA as an example of years and years of testing and 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 uh, very very much down to the detail. Every screw basically is tested and 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 it's twisted 470 degrees to be locked in. You know, it's everything has a plan and. Uh, um, Um, has been developed in some way. I don't think that is necessary. Um, A best example, again, is SpaceX. The reason why they are so much faster. And in the end, the products are really, really good. I mean, uh, the Falcon 9 is the best rocket out there right now. And the Crew Dragon seems to be the best capsule out there right now. Even though they were faster than anybody else. Um, So I don't think that it's necessarily bad to be faster. Um, It it just needs a different approach. And... um, the starship is, uh, um, the, I, I think the main reason why people perceive the starship as something so different right now is because they don't um, uh, see that this is not the starship that is going to fly people to Mars. What you, what we see in Boca Chica right now, it, it, and the dirt and the dents in the hull and all that kind of crude looking stuff is not what's going to fly to Mars. This is just... Uh, foundation level engineering, basically. It's just that to find out how to build that Starship that will fly us to Mars. That is not going to have dents and it's not going to be built on a dirt hill. So, I, I think that is some, somewhat confusing if people look at, 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 at the Starship and think, wow, how is this? I mean, how could you build a space station like this? You could, but you wouldn't build a module for the space station like this. You would just test different ways how to build a module like this fast, dirty, and cheap uh, with, because in the beginning, nothing else is needed. If you take the approach SpaceX is taking, and that's a different one than NASA, that's for sure.
0: So Miko, you've been pretty quiet this episode. If you could design the, the space station of the future, what do you think it would look like? Like what do, what do you think we'll see going into the future of space stations beyond the ISS?
2: Well, I think in the near future, The Bigelow expandable module concept would be something that could be looked on. And in the future, it could be an O'Neill cylinder, but that would probably be a couple of hundred years into the future. And when we think something profitable that could be in space, there's asteroid mining. So, having a space station orbit an asteroid, that could be something profitable, or even on the asteroid.
0: That's actually quite interesting, although I'm not sure if there are any asteroids out there that would have enough masts that we could orbit a space station around it. So, probably landing one would be your best option, I believe. However, having said that, we did see the Bennu... Uh, mission recently where they've since discovered that underneath the surface of the asteroid it's very foamy almost like like the, the, the asteroid itself has not very, very much substance at all
2: Yeah, no, it wouldn't be very profitable to land on Bennu but for example the asteroid Psyche that has well it's a big one and it's almost completely made out of metal yeah isn't that
3: uh, believed to be uh, a former planet core that's a really interesting
2: story yeah that's the one we actually had a deep dive about that
0: what about you if you could like design your space station of the future um you know what how would it look like for you
1: for me i kind of take a little bit more of a Dr Robert Zubrin approached to this and look at the a lot of the challenges that we're going to face here and this is a huge challenge that we have right now is that with the international space station it's very protected in low earth orbit the the astronauts on board can be uh, shielded by the magnetosphere one of the first challenges that we need to overcome is how can we survive and learn to survive when it comes to not being able to escape immediately and come back to Earth. Having to truly survive on your own and even have a little bit of a signal delay uh, that goes with it. Granted, it's only about a second or so of, uh, of delay, but still that can really help with learning how humanity can survive that much further away from Earth. And then take that to the next step of, okay, how do we survive in a space station environment in, for example, circling Mars? But that's the part where I think that now that we've slowed down, we also need to speed up. And space stations at that point might not be the ultimate goal that we should shoot for, but maybe in fact generational ships. That if we truly are going to become multiplanetary, then why don't we also become interstellar? and figure out ways to take humanity beyond just the scope of our solar system but to the next nearest stars there's a lot of challenges that come with that like you know how how would humanity cope with that sort of thing where for example middle generations have no purpose but maintenance and procreation there's a lot of things that would need to be uh learned anew but the first thing i think we need to learn is how do we survive outside of the shield of our own planet
0: well it just so happens our radiation specialist is here would you like to pass off to him
1: yeah sure uh joining us is Framric, and yeah Framric, do you have anything you'd like to add to this
4: yeah so it's an interesting challenge isn't it so low earth orbit has some of the protections you mentioned the magnetic field i mean they obviously have to watch out even in low earth orbit um, the uh, the altitude they reach. I think there's a 500-kilometre ceiling, which NASA sets. Otherwise, you start to drift into the lower edges of the Van Allen belts, and radiation doses go up when you pass over something called the South Atlantic Anomaly, uh, where the, uh, the magnetic fields curve down towards the Earth and the uh, protection is, is a bit weaker. It's got to be just like life support part of the design of something as you head further out into the solar system. Um, you know, Bigelow modules, for example, have uh, some proprietary shielding, uh, Kevlar light materials to try and slow down cosmic ray particles, and then a little bit of heavier material to, to cut out some of the uh, the photon gamma ray energies uh, and so on. Um, but in the same way you're going to design a, a closed loop life support system to recycle war and air. You need your power, you, I think you need some shielding in there as well um there's a, there's quite a lot of information people saying all oh, the doses aren't too too bad but if you are out there for a long period of time you're an asteroid miner you're going to need to uh, to have some compensation for the amount of radiation you're exposed to um or some mitigations there's some work being done very good presentation on the mars 2020 uh, mars society 2020 conference on Mitigating measures like dietary supplements, where radiation tends to cause an interaction in the body. Um, you get what's called free radicals that can start to attack DNA and cause damage. Uh, that's that's what radiation damage is, really. But if you eat the right diet, you can mop up some of these free radicals. So there might be a combination of actual physical work on spaceships or habitation, but also looking at how to protect the uh, the organic life forms, the squishies within.
1: Yeah, those are some excellent points. And there's, there's actually, there's a TV show that I've talked about previously on this program uh, called Away on Netflix. It gets a lot of things wrong, um, but it also gets a couple things right. And one of those is that the uh, ship that they're traveling in to get to Mars has a water barrier uh, inside the uh, exterior hull in order to protect them from uh, cosmic radiation. And that's one of the things that I've i i've I've not really seen too much on the bigelow uh, spacecraft or space station component i'm not sure what to call it at this point but would it would it actually have the capability to protect people to that effect or to that degree where uh, quite frankly speaking from what i know of it it's not that thick of a barrier between the exterior component and the interior-most wall.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the Bigelow modules use a sort of a Kevlar-like material with a, um, a foam flexible layer inside. It's polymer foam uh, and, and lighter materials, hydrogenous materials are really good at slowing down these really heavy cosmic ray particles, which carry a lot of energy. They're up into the sort of 30 million electron volts range, which in the, in the stuff I'm used to dealing with is, is very, very high energy. So you slow these things down with hydrogenous materials. Um, And then you uh, if you end up with a that's where you use a bit of solar energy um, Split it into an oxygen and then combine them again later if you're if you're down
1: and there's even some uh, research that came out recently about the fungi species Cladosporium spherospermum that has the ability to absorb and maybe even block some cosmic radiation and I think there's even some experiments being done right now aboard the International Space Station with that uh, fungi. Uh, Framric, do you uh, know anything about this?
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two things that living organisms can teach us, and particularly when you look at some organisms around areas such as Chernobyl with a, an enhanced radiation background, um, one is, is the biological effect. So has a species got a mechanism of preparing radiation damage and so it can tolerate a higher environment? That's the kind of biological assistance if you like and then the other one is does it have something in its cellular structure to provide more shielding Um, and, and as I said you know if you've got more melanin in there if you've got something that actually is better than water density of water is obviously a a gram per cubic centimetre if you've got some materials which are slightly denser but still quite hydrogenous they could act as excellent shielding you'd still need a layer of it I did see some claims that they might use the radiation resistant fungi and kind of fill an astronaut suit with it
1: so since we're on the topic of um, future technology I guess at this point so what are some additional steps that would need to be taken to make future space station technology more resilient to being in deep space and supporting dozens if not hundreds of lives
0: I would definitely say materials research for sure like metamaterials um, so at the moment we're currently experimenting with uh, nanotechnology in materials we have like nano, uh, nanoparticles of gold but effectively you can combine uh, nanoparticles of various materials into current materials to reinforce properties and stuff like that so materials research is something that is actively being done at a couple of elon's companies i know they're doing the materials research into their heat tiles and i know they're also doing the materials research into the fibers of the Neuralink as well for you know lowering rejection rates and whatnot so I would think, personally, looking to the future, materials research is where it's at.
2: I think uh, living life support would be a good idea, so there would be no need to fill the tanks with water or anything like that. What about you, Felix?
3: I was thinking if I should say that out loud, because I have uh, a different opinion about this. Um, if you work on a construction site, you can hit get hit by a stone and die. If you, if you work on an oil rig, you, there's a good chance you can die. There's lots of um, uh, jobs out there that are very dangerous. And still, nobody would, would say we cannot do that until it's completely safe. We, we do it. We know it's dangerous, but we still do it. And everyday people do it. It's not even astronauts. It's just normal people who choose to do this, get more pay for higher risk. I think that's, I think that same thing applies to space. Um, NASA has a high safety policy. It, It is not done if it is not completely safe or as safe as humanly possible. I think that is a, uh, That's the reason why I said, I don't know if I should say that out loud, because there are plenty of people out there who would disagree and rightfully so. But I think that is a boundary and that's keeping us from from reaching out right now. It cannot be completely safe. If you're on Mars, you're not in a safe place. No matter how much you invest into, I mean, material research, in my opinion, I completely agree with Rich, is a, a trove of stuff That we can still research for the future and it's going to make it safer but if we don't start no nobody's gonna ever be there in my opinion so yeah it's a difficult topic and I I completely agree that nobody should be put into a position that is not safe but as I said before you find people who are actually willing to do it who who, who are looking for for these kinds of dangerous um, Uh, jobs and they are willing to do it. And uh, yeah, exploring space is dangerous in my opinion.
1: There is one thing though that's actually there's I think three things that separate. You gave for example working on oil rigs uh, Mm -hmm. versus um, working in space. There are though three things that are starkly different uh, between those and those are purpose, cost and politics that with like uh, an oil rig, there's, there's, there's a commercial purpose behind it. Whereas with space, there's, there's not like a financial reason to to keep doing it so much. There's also uh, on the topic of uh, finances the cost. Whereas, um, for lack of a better phrase, throwing more bodies at the problem on an oil rig is a lot cheaper to do than it is to put humans in space. Uh, but then there's also the, the the optics of the the politics behind it, where with an oil rig that's just that's commonplace, and if somebody is injured or killed on that, it's not going to cause both sides of Congress to just get into massive rabble rousing fights. Whereas with space, you make one mistake, and everyone starts screaming and losing their heads, and that yep, you're you're right. That's definitely something that needs to change in order to, it to make this. Yeah, it, it, it needs to change in order to make this something that's a lot more, a lot more possible to do. Uh, but more so, a lot more have a lot more frequency of doing it. That mistakes will be made. Some people will unfortunately die. But it needs to also have that same. Uh, it has it needs to have at least some similar purpose, cost. And political, uh, less politics. Uh, less, that's exactly yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah. they go into you know something no different than working on an oil rig or or other dangerous uh, lines of work. Yeah, I actually have, I have quite a few friends who already said because I,
3: I have a habit of talking about space stuff to my friends. <laughs> uh, comes with the occupation i guess and many of them say that yeah i would do that in an instant i would go to mars that's absolutely awesome I, I went to ship leaving so it's not even about the people the people want to do it it's it's about the politics the private sector has to do it otherwise it's not it's it, it'll be it'll be uh, planting another flag taking some samples and going back
0: so i really get where both the, uh you felix and kage are coming from so I feel with Felix there's there's you know this idea of we need to be doing this to be seen doing it so that it inspires the future generation to carry on doing it effectively.
2: Yep.
0: Um you know we, we need that inspiration to lead us forward and and I believe that's very much what these new rocket providers are doing, you know every time they launch we're all sat there and all watching at the launches go up, you know. And and in terms of uh, Kage and his response, I feel that everything we do in space it can be summed up in one word, and that's visible. Everything is very very visible. Very, you know, there's people very aware of everything that's going on up there. And whenever something goes wrong, you know, the entire world goes, oh crap. So it's one of those things that you know we need to accept that doing dangerous things danger is part of the job but in terms of space exploration you know there, there has to be risk to see reward
3: but that's a good point actually saying that it's very very visible. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. If some if there's something bad happening on the oil oil rig, if it's not a massive oil spill and even that doesn't always make it into the news, you're not going to hear it. It's a bit the same thing as with electric cars right now. When one of them does something wrong, the whole world hears about the autopilot that went into it drove into the white truck. Everybody has heard it. But if there's a car accident somewhere, yeah, it's a yeah, happens. And that's it. And that's the same thing, I think, too. Yeah, If there's a hole in the ISS, the whole world stares at it and then they just use some epoxy to, to fix it. And that's that's it. But even though, the whole world stares at
1: it. I'm wondering idly, what would it take to reduce the, the, the political visibility that goes into this? And I find myself wondering, could it be that NASA and even SpaceX lately are a little bit to blame for that, that they have made Space so visible. I mean, look at look at how commonplace it is for people to tune into a, uh, a SpaceX launch and watch as uh, cameras ride a first stage from launch to apogee to coming back through the atmosphere to landing on the drone ship. It's it's entertainment at this point. And is that part of the problem? Does that additional visibility make this? An even more difficult challenge to having this as something where there's just risk acceptance and we look at it little to no difference than the unfortunate tragedies that happen with other uh, risky jobs that is, is the visibility of this the the constant broadcasting of it partially to blame here
0: I think there's very much two sides to this argument that you present the, the one side is Okay, they're broadcasting it a lot. That you know, a lot of people are getting to see it. And what this is doing is, it's making space an everyday thing. And and I one hundred percent agree with that. All of the every time they launch and they nail it, then you know, it's it's becoming more and more standard to see this.
1: It's and- inspirational.
0: Yeah, well, it's inspirational, but at the same time, people are getting used to it now. It's it's becoming a more we're taking it for granted, you know that. Oh, there's another launch. Yeah, that's great, and we're used to seeing it now. But at the same time, when you broadcast this and expose it to the world, you also have the issue of okay, when something goes wrong, a lot of people are going to see it, and because a lot of people are going to see it, a lot of press sites are going to see it, and they're going to run the stories. And media, great. It's uh, sometimes spinning things a little bit too far, and th- there's there's going to be some scaremongering. But this is part and parcel of what happens when you're trying to make space normal. You know, it's it's just part and parcel of what happens. It's just the teething phase of standardizing spacefaring travel for our civilization.
3: Yeah, and with uh, SpaceX, you can't. You can't forget that they are doing new revolutionary things every year so right now they are constantly feeding everybody with stuff to look at uh uh first it's the landing booster for, or first it's the falcon 9 rocket then it's the landing booster then it's the crew dragon going to the iss then it's the uh, the, the cargo dragon it's the it's now it's the starship or starlink all those are really interesting things and that's why everybody's watching but i think once um you have three four five starship launches per day that's maybe even low considering what what elon musk plans for for in the end people are not going to watch every star uh, starship launch the, the first few will be super interesting and then the, the launch number 678 is going to be watched by people like us, the enthusiasts. But everybody else is not going to pay any attention anymore because it's an, it's, it's an old thing. The news only reports about new things, interesting things. And right, like I said, SpaceX right now is feeding us these new and interesting things on a constant basis.
4: Yeah, I suppose when you think about the first person fly in the Atlantic, Charles Lindbergh, people lined up on either shore watching that plane come over. It's a special event. People watching it to see that it touches down safely. But then as soon as it's the uh, 747s flying backwards and forwards each day, um, it becomes routine, doesn't it? And, and then maybe that's once you've got 10, 20, 30,000 people in low Earth orbit, um, the focus will go away from every single little risk to it becomes normal life.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think you don't even have to go that far. Um,
4: you just mentioned
3: Lindbergh, or uh, and and then the 747. I think um, even the second flight over the Atlantic wasn't watched anymore. <laughs> Apollo, <laughs> Apollo 11, the whole world watches. Apollo 12, a few people. Apollo 13 was watched because it had a cata- catastrophe on it. Apollo 14, nobody watched anymore. And that was flights to the moon. It's it's always the same thing. It's, it's it, the public is interested in something new. And once it's not new anymore, people look elsewhere for the next new thing.
2: So if we come back to the more near future, what do you think, Felix? Will starships become space stations on orbit since they actually have the inner volume of ISS and also Blue Origin has some plans to use the upper stages as space stations.
3: Yeah, that's a very, very interesting thing. It's it's so it's so weird um, when you <laughs> when you imagine that the Starship, which is actually just an upper stage of a rocket, is so large that you could easily use it as a space station. Um, yeah, the the production cost will be low um, if you outfit it with a with a proper um, well. Yeah, you need a lot of extra systems to keep it there permanently, or at least for a, a long-term use. You would need to have all sorts of extra systems. But yeah, it, it would be possible to um, maybe dock a few starships together, and then ha- I mean, one starship is has has as much pressurizable ro- room, the crude version, as the ISS. About right. So uh, yeah. It would definitely make sense, it would be cheap, it would be fast and uh, it's it's a strange thing still though, to, to use the whole Starship just as a, as a space station. But I, th- I guess it would be possible and it's a very interesting prospect, yes,
1: definitely.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It is absolutely mind-blowing to think about how the space station, the International Space Station, the size of at least an American football field. Granted, that's a lot of that solar panels, but still something spread out that far has the same interior volume as the things that we've been watching them, unfortunately, blow up from time to time, but uh, (laughs) sometimes hop. It's extraordinary, really. Yeah, it's
3: really strange.
1: Yeah, but with that, we've uh, unfortunately hit our time. First, Felix, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the show again. I am Kage, one of the hosts for Becoming Multiplanetary. And now I'll hand over to our other guests and co-hosts to uh, also say their goodbyes to you. First up is Rich LB. Hi,
0: I'm Rich LB, also a co-host here at Becoming Multiplanetary. Again, Felix, big thank you for coming back onto the show. It's been great having you here. Uh, It's been great hearing from you regarding the space stations this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Again, keep an eye on the Twitter channel. I'll be announcing topics there. And with that, I will pass over to our other co-host, Miko.
2: I've been Miko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. And Felix, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you very, very much for having me. I Like I said in the beginning, this is take number two. I'm already looking forward to take number three, so you're not going to lose, lose me that quickly. I, it's it's a really, really enjoyable podcast, and it's it's so much fun to do this with you guys. Thank you for having me.
1: And finally, we have Framric.
4: Yep, yeah, excellent podcast. Thanks very much for letting me join in, guys.
1: Yes, thank you for joining. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, uh, check us out at totalspace.net. You can also find us on... Uh, YouTube. Look for Total Space on Twitter, Total Space Net. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe videos from Felix. Uh, You can find him on YouTube at What About It. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next time.